Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 12, it says. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or or as his counselor has taught him. With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall they their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal? Says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. And see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. No one, not one is missing. Why do you speak, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah chapter 40 is one of the keys, one of the pivotal foundational, fundamental chapters in order to understand the book of Isaiah. 
In this chapter, Isaiah promises comfort and deliverance and hope and a future for his people. God wants to set us free. And when we looked at the first 11 verses, we understood that God is able to set us free by his salvation. And now we learn that God is able to set us free by his greatness. We are set free from the captivity of sin and death. We are free through God's salvation and greatness. We are no longer under the just punishment, if you will, of sin and death. God has promised to forgive our sins. He's promised to redeem us and resurrect us. We have enemies, though. We know from the Bible that there are three main enemies that we have. The world, the flesh, and the devil. But if we were to fundamentally describe our enemies, it would be this. Our enemy is anyone or anything. It is any man. It is any philosophy. It is any person. It is any church. It is anything that keeps us from a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Babylonian captivity, remember, is going to take place. It's going to create a crisis of faith. I've already talked with you the last time that we met that this particular chapter was written over a hundred years in advance. The Babylonians would come from the east. They, They would capture Judah and Jerusalem. They would take the children of Israel captive. They would find themselves on the banks of the Euphrates. They would be in great pain and they would be in great sorrow. The children of Israel and Judah were warned over and over and over again that rejection and rebellion would lead to judgment. Just like we're warned over and over again that rejection and rebellion leads to judgment. We are warned over and over again that we can't continue in sin. We are warned over and over again that we can't live a life of estrangement from God. Isaiah predicted their suffering. He also predicts that their suffering would cause some to repent and some to return to the Lord. Is that what your pain and suffering has done? Has it caused you to cry out to God? When you find yourself in a position of deprivation, of alienation, of estrangement, when you find your circumstances dark and hopeless, do you turn to the Lord? Do you cry out for his help? Here's what we learn, that if they would cry out to God, he would help them and he would forgive their sins. As a matter of fact, the chapter lists eight of God's wondrous attributes. As a matter of fact, four have already been described in the first 11 verses. In verse one, we learned about God's mercy. In verse two, we learned about God's glory. In verses six through nine, we learned about God's eternality. He is the God who occupies eternity. He knows the beginning from the end. God knows everything about everything. And because he occupies eternity, he knows always how things are going to turn out. In verse 10, we learned about his gentleness. In verses 12 and 26, we learn about his omnipotence, that is his ability to have all power. In verses 
13 and 14, we learn about his omniscience. That's God's ability to know everything. In verses 15 through 17 and 21 through 24, we learn about his sovereignty. In verses 18 through 20 and verse in verse 25, we learn about God's absolute and utter uniqueness. The prophet Isaiah points out Israel's ongoing problem. God, Israel's ongoing problem was they had forgotten about God's power. They had forgotten about God's strength. They had forgotten about God's greatness. They had forgotten about God's attributes. And do you realize that's when you get in trouble? It's when you forget just a temporary lapse. You know that God has power. You know that God is great. You know God's attributes. But for whatever reason, you find yourself in a dark circumstance and you forget. By the way, the children of Israel would also come to a false conclusion. They would come to the false conclusion that God doesn't know them. Or doesn't care about them in verses 27 and 28. When you, and we're going to come to that in just a moment. The people of Israel were given a promise. If they would but ask, God would renew their strength. God would allow them to mount up with wings like eagles. So now Isaiah proclaims the greatness of God. The greatness of God in the midst of pain and suffering. You know, long, long ago, back in the Jesus days, there was a guy named Don Francisco, and he used to sing a song. The song went something like, the life that I have given you, no one can take away. I've sealed it with my spirit, blood and word. The everlasting father has made his covenant with you. And he's stronger than the world that you've seen and heard. And he said, so don't forget to show them all the love that I have for you. And I'll be with you in everything that you do. And the song says, and even if. You do it wrong and miss the joy I've planned. No matter what will happen, child, I'll never let go of your hand. The Lord is greater. The Lord is greater than the universe that you've seen and heard. The Lord is greater than the created universe. The Lord is greater than any human teacher or counselor. The Lord is greater than the collective wisdom of every human being who has every li ever lived in every generation. And so again, we find a collection of things as he points to the greatness of God. He, he points out to just several things, seven things that I want to bring to your attention. God is greater than the created universe in verse 12. God is greater than the collective council of human beings in verses 13 and 14. God is greater than all the nations and every nation at the height of their power and the height of their glory. God is greater than every false God and every false philosophy and every false image and every man-made idol in verses 18 through 21. God is greater than all of the people collectively on 
that on everywhere on the earth in verses 22 through 24. God is greater than any being in the entire universe in verses 25 through 26. God, and this becomes part of the point as we lead to the climax of the chapter and in the end of the chapter, God is greater than any trial, than any test, than any temptation. Than any tribulation. In verses 1 through 11, God sets us free by his salvation. In verses 12 through 31, God sets us free by his greatness. And so, one of the things that becomes really important about this chapter, and I don't have time to talk about it at great length, but the doctrine of creation by God is essential in understanding this portion of, 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 of Scripture. If for whatever reason you have falsely come to the conclusion that this universe is self-existent. If you have falsely come to the conclusion that you just sort of got here through random happenstance and circumstance, perchance. If you have falsely come to the conclusion that life is a point of pain and a meaningless existence, then you're going to miss the point of this chapter. God is greater than creation. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? By the way, if you take all of the water on the planet Earth, most of you know that this Earth is two-thirds covered with water and one-third covered with a landmass. If you were to take all of the land masses on the surface of the planet and literally level them down, the entire planet would be one and one half miles covered in water. So the, the writer says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? He's talking about all of the oceans everywhere on the planet in the crease, in the hollow of the hand of God. Measured heaven with a span. By the way, do you know how far a span is? It's half of a cubit. Do you remember the dumb jokes that uh, that used to be said about a cubit? You know, how big is a cubit? A cubit is from the tip of your elbow to your middle finger. A span is the distance between your little finger and your thumb. So the Bible says that God measures the heaven with a span. If you were to ask God in heaven, how large is the universe? The Lord would go, about that big. From end to end. The idea being it is certainly large enough for God to hold. Who has calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? We would say a thimble or a spoon. By the way, there are 30,000 tons of cosmic dust that enter our atmosphere and come to the surface of the planet in any given year. The Lord knows every particle. He's weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. How big is God? My friend Walt Brown, who has an earned Ph.D. from MIT, who used to teach computer science at the university or excuse me, of the United States Air Force Academy, writes, quote, no scientific theory exists to explain the origin of space, 
time matter because each is intimately related to or even defined in terms of the other. A satisfactory explanation for the origin of one must also explain the origin of the other. Naturalistic explanations have completely failed. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I have a problem with that tough. You tell me your explanation of how nothing becomes something. So the God that is spoken of in the Bible, when it comes concerning your problems, how great is he? He is greater than the sum and the substance of every galaxy everywhere. He's also greater than counsel. Look at verses 13 and 14. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or As his counselor has taught him. Do you think the Lord goes online and hits Google and goes, I think I'm going to Google this. Do you think the Lord listens to Oprah or Dr. Phil? Where does the Lord get his advice? Who has instructed him? And taught him the path of justice. Look what it says. Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The Bible makes it abundantly clear. The Lord has no need for counsel or advice. The Lord has no need for anyone to teach him justice. And so when anyone ever says, Lord, you're not being fair. What? Are you do you actually think you can counsel God concerning justice? Who can impart knowledge to God? Who will give understanding to the Lord? Can you imagine the Lord looking up anything in the encyclopedia? The obvious answer is no. And see, when we stop and we think about that, we rarely think about our own foolish, immature prayers. Lord, if it were me, this is what I would do. And that's exactly right. You can almost hear God laughing in heaven. Well, thanks for that input. God is greater than creation. God is greater than the sum and the substance of every worldly counsel. God is greater than the combined philosophies of every man who has ever lived in any generation. God is greater than the sum and the substance of the collective wisdom of all humanity. He's greater than the nations. Look what it says in verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. He's talking about the dust that would be used in order to weigh out sums and substances. It's like during the time of the gold rush when you would have little silver particles and little gold dust and you just blow it off of the scales. 
And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. In other words, the great forests of Lebanon, if you took the sum and the substance and you cut down every tree in the country, it would be like burning nothing before the Lord, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. When the children of Israel and the people of Judah and Jerusalem were reading the words of Isaiah and they finally found themselves on the shores of the Euphrates in Babylon, they remembered the problem of Egypt. They remembered the problem of Assyria. They remembered the mighty majesty of Babylon, which had captured them and enslaved them. You know, a few things are more awesome than to go to a United States Air Force jet carrier in the Gulf and watch it take off. Few things are more awesome than to see the collective military might of the United States of America. But guess what? The collective glory and majesty and military might of America is like nothing compared to the glory and the majesty of the true and the living God. Every civilization, everywhere, China, if you go all the way back and you count down the major civilizations of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, according to the word of God, they're like nothing. They are less than nothing and worthless. The sum and the substance of every culture, every language, Every contribution made by every civilization amounts to nothing compared to the glory and the splendor of God. Greater than false gospels. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare to him? If you're Kenneth Copeland, you'll say God is like about six foot two. He's a man about 200 pounds. And his hand is a little bit bigger than mine. What an idiot. To whom then will you liken God? Like Joseph Smith and Brigham Young? God was a man like you are a man. And he was promoted and elevated to Godhood sometime in the distant past. Really? To whom then will you liken God? The right answer is, there is no one ever under any circumstance. Or what likeness will you compare him to? If he created the heavens and the earth and everything that is therein contained, how can you compare him? Think of the most impressive person that you can. Think of the most dynamic, the most intelligent, the most awesome, the most incredible, life-changing, impacting person in the world. And God isn't impressed. Since God made everything and everyone, he is not impressed with the rulers of this world. The Lord is not impressed that Oprah has a daily television show. The Lord doesn't go to Hollywood and ooh and ah the celebrities. The Lord doesn't go to the United Nations to hear the eloquence of the statesmen of this world. 
And look what it says in verse 19. The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. Oh, is God impressed with idols? When the French gave us the Statue of Liberty, did the Lord go, <laughs> When we chiseled out the heads of presidents in the Dakotas, did the Lord go, That's impressive. The Bible says in verse 20, whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. In other words, if you're not rich enough to buy an idol that's made of gold and silver, well, a poorer person might find a tree that won't rot. He'll seek for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. In other words, he'll try and get a god or a goddess that when you touch it, it won't tip over. Or if you have it out on the porch when you're doing your barbecue tomorrow, if a strong wind comes, it won't blow your statue over. Yeah, the Lord sees the ridiculousness of all of that. And he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Note there are four questions that take place in verse 20. It says, excuse me, in verse 21, have you not known, number one? Have you not heard, number two? Has it not been told you from the beginning, number three? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Part of these questions seem to be rooted and grounded in Hebrew history and theology. Didn't you ever read Genesis? Didn't you ever read Exodus? Didn't you ever read Leviticus and Deuteronomy? Haven't you heard? Don't you understand how in the beginning God created the, the heavens and the earth? Don't you understand? how he placed human beings in a garden? Don't you understand how they rebelled and sinned against their God? Don't you, haven't you heard that God collectively destroyed all of humanity, saving eight people in a boat? Haven't you heard that God separated himself, a man named Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who had several sons, including one named Judah, who would produce a son named Jesse, who would produce a son named David? Haven't you heard? Don't you understand that it is God who has created the heavens and the earth? That it is God who's pushing history forward? The Lord is the sole creator of the universe and all of its inhabitants. The Lord is not the universe. The Lord is not this world or its inhabitants. The Lord is not this world. Contrary to pantheism that teaches everything is God. God is everything. God is the birds and the bees, the flowers, the trees, the moon up above, and this thing that you and I call love. The Bible says, no, that is not true. How can something, how can anything that was made by God... Represent him. And how in the world, if a pitiful galaxy on the outskirts of the universe in all of its majesty is not large enough or beautiful enough to represent God, how can something man made possibly represent the true and the living God? 
God is greater. God is greater than humanity. Look at what it says in verses 22 and 24. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Isn't that an interesting expression? The writer, Isaiah, pictures himself released of gravity and he begins to go into the upper atmosphere. And the larger and the longer he begins to go up, he looks down at the planet like a circle. Do you remember when the children of Israel, when they went into the promised land and they met the offspring of 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 Anakim, the giants in the land, and they said, we are like grasshoppers before them. Isaiah says everybody on the planet Earth is like grasshoppers before God. If you go up high enough, they look like tiny little insects crawling over the surface of the planet. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah wrote these words in 700 B.C. It was only in our lifetime. Well, not all of you. Some of you are pretty young. In some of your lifetime, the understanding and the theory of an expanding universe has been scientifically proven. The universe is expanding like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. It doesn't matter. I shouldn't. I need to be careful how I speak now. The Lord causes kings to rule and presidents to hold office. But no matter what king you are, no matter what president you are, no no matter which Supreme Court justices you elect, in the grand scheme of things, every person, in every civilization, in every where, will be basically useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root. And he's not talking about the stock market. Not talking about the Dow Jones. It's talking about likening human beings to little stick figures that you stick in the dirt and the wind comes and blows them away. When he also will blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. He's talking about the fragile, temporal, limited circumstances of life on this earth. And look what the Lord says in verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might. And the strength of his power. Not one is missing. You know what the the writer is doing? He's inviting you to go outside. And look at the universe. When the sun goes down. And the stars come out. And he says. Guess what? He brings out the stars. And look at what else. He calls them all by name. And you'll note what God doesn't do. I I don't think he calls them like A1, B2, C3, D4. I think God has really long and complicated names for these stars. 
He doesn't say the red dwarf next to the white giant. Or he doesn't say that really pretty red star next to that really pretty white star. He lifts them up. God brings out the stars. He calls them by name. (laughs) By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Now, imagine it was your job that you owned all of the sand on all of the beaches in California. Do you think it's possible you might misplace a grain of sand? Ooh, here's one that's stuck to my toe. It's hidden. But God doesn't misplace things in the universe. In the vastness of creation, he doesn't lose a single star. By the way, Paul, the apostle in the New Testament, makes this interesting comment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 41, Paul writes, There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. And then Paul says this, For one star differs from another star in glory. Over 2,000 years ago, Paul the Apostle wrote that in this thing called the universe, each and every star is different. By the way, we've only recently discovered that that is absolutely scientifically true. By the way, do you know how many stars, according to the latest estimate, there are in the universe? Ten to the 22nd power. Do you understand how large a number that is? That is a one and a zero followed by 22 zeros. The number is such an enormous number that it is almost impossible for us to comprehend how large that number is. If you took every molecule in your body, it would be 10 to the 16th power. If you took every atom in your body, it would still be less than the number of the stars in the known universe. By the way, no two stars have exactly the same properties. This may sound like guesswork since we've analyzed very few stars in detail, but the the conclusion is a certainty. A star has so many variables that the probability of two identical stars is essentially zero. These variables include the total number of atoms, the exact composition of elements, the size, the temperature. Some stars show obvious color and brightness differences. Others require spectroscopic study to detect each star's particular identity and fingerprint. If God knows every star and has a name for every star... It is absolutely, positively impossible. Not only for God not to know you, but to know everything about you. In Psalm 147.4 it says the Bible also says that God determines the number of stars. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 it says, Who, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things, upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
The Bible says that Jesus makes it possible for everything in the universe to exist. In, in his book, Coming Face to Face with Majesty, the author writes, and I quote, In the Bible, God says that he upholds all things. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The New Testament Greek word, which is commonly translated as uphold, means to support or maintain. The implication of this word being in the present tense is that it is happening continuously. In other words, at this present moment, God is sustaining everything in the universe. If he would cease to sustain, we would cease to exist. If the negatively charged electron were not kept moving at exactly its current speed, it would drop toward the positively charged nucleus and every atom in the universe would be destroyed. What keeps these electrons moving? Even brilliant physicists have no satisfactory answer to this question. All matter is matter made up of tiny particles called atoms. If the force holding the nucleus of these atoms together were reduced, the positively charged protons in the nucleus, which strongly repel each other, would instantaneously fly apart. Positively charged particles will repel each other the same way the positive ends of two bar magnets repel each other. Or the way a Bronco fan is repelled by a Raider fan. The scientific mystery of why positively charged protons in the nucleus, which are extremely close together, do not fly apart, has never been solved. Although scientists have called the force which holds the atoms together by various names, including gluons and the strong nuclear force, they really don't understand what it is or how it operates. But Paul wrote in the book of Colossians almost 2,000 years ago that Jesus is